Please pray with me. Father, be glorified today. Father, as we learn from your word, I pray that you give us soft hearts. I pray that you make us receptive to the truths of scripture. I pray that you make much of yourself and very little of me. It's in your son's name, I pray. Amen. Morning. We are in 1 Peter today. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. If you're using one of the Pew Bibles, that's in page uh, 1014, 1014. And you may be wondering, why this passage? Someone earlier came up and said, Dave, that's a great passage, but it's pretty short. I don't know how you're going to preach the whole time. Um, You'll be surprised, my friends. (laughs) In in seriousness, um, I'm incredibly blessed as an elder of this church to occasionally have the opportunity to preach, to share God's word. And after a good deal of prayerful consideration, I decided that whenever I have those occasions, I wanted to start the project of slowly but surely, sequentially preaching through 1 Peter. By my math, uh, that will take about 34 years, two verses at a time, but that's okay. That will be a life well spent. Um, And the reason why I'm so passionate about the book of 1 Peter is that I believe the circumstances that the original audience was facing being hostility from the world around them, are incredibly applicable to us today. That's a big assertion I just made. So I wanted to back it up. I did some research on the topic of intolerance towards the Christian faith in the United States. And so I did what all great researchers do, and I asked Google uh, to mixed results. One of the most telling Results I found, and, you, and you'll, love, uh, you'll love these responses, was in a simple question that someone posted to an online community of over 300 million active users. It's not a community for discussing religion. It's a broad, general community. And the question was asked, do Christians in the United States face intolerance for their faith? The responses were immediate, numerous, and decidedly one-sided. I won't read them all because there were so many and because most contained words that I cannot say. But here's a few responses that capture the sentiment. The first, one would have to be utterly out of their mind to believe that American Christians are facing any sort of intolerance, began the response, and it continued. I will say this, however, when I find out that someone is a Christian, they immediately go straight to my watch list as someone who cannot be trusted. Another response stated, no, of course Christians don't face intolerance in the U.S. This type of nonsense is one of the many reasons why I genuinely hate them and go out of my way to ridicule them and get them kicked out of the public square. Another response, No, people aren't hostile towards Christians. No one is getting rounded up and put into coliseums to fight lions, although I personally would pay to see that. None of them picked up on the irony. 
One of the difficulties in making an assertion that Christians in the United States face hostility is that, relatively speaking, there's a lot of places on earth where Christians have it much worse. Christians in the United States, as a general rule, do not risk imminent threats against our life because of our faith. That is unlike believers in other countries, such as Afghanistan or Somalia. But does that necessarily mean that our society is tolerant towards the Christian faith? I found this helpful. One nonprofit organization that studies religious freedom said that there's actually two types of hostility against religion that can be found in a society. Smash and squeeze. I love that. That's such colorful language. Smash intolerance is violence. It's, it's uh, fearing for your life because of your faith. And it's true. In the United States, that is not something on a broad scale that Christians face. It's fair. Squeeze intolerance, on the other hand, refers to persistent, widespread hostility that a person may face their job, in their community, at their school, within society, among their family, because of their faith. You can think of that as, as the death by a thousand cuts metaphor. Each cut on its own is a small thing, but those small cuts add up over time, and the result of this squeeze-style hostility towards the Christian faith is that eventually society permanently marginalizes and then expels Christians from participation in that society. One study in the United States found that employees who were open about their Christian faith were more likely to be ostracized by their peers, and they were more likely to face overt and covert consequences for speaking up from their employer than their coworkers who expressed different religions or political views. Another study, and this certainly matches, I think, most of our lived experiences, found they uh, surveyed over 3,000 portrayals of Christians in major studio films and television shows. All but three portrayals were negative. We are at best portrayed as naive idiots. At worst, dangerous fanatics, a threat to society. The third study I found said that the majority of Christians in this country admit that there's at least one sphere of their life, whether that is work or school, community, family, where these Christians said that they had to hide their Christian faith because they were confident that they would face significant negative consequences if they were identified as a Christian. Is that the same as being fed to lions? No. At the same time, we can't dismiss it either. I found it quite telling that one prominent atheist author acknowledged this relatively new phenomenon of Christians being punished for expressing their faith. But he went on to say that this expunging of Christians from public life is a net positive to society. He said, because of their abhorrent beliefs, 
they deserve to be violently expelled from the public square. The squeeze. First Peter is a book that was written to Christians who were living in the squeeze. These were believers who in the years to come would experience the smash. Later on, after this letter was written, it did become the official government policy to persecute the church. But that wasn't happening yet. Don't collapse history here. At the time this letter was written, they were in a society that found the Christian faith intolerable. The things that the Bible taught went against everything that that society believed. What they held dear was viewed as wholly incompatible with what was good and right in that society. They faced discrimination, mistreatment, slander, insults, and they were increasingly driven to the margins of society. Their ability to make a living was constantly in peril. They were viewed as repugnant outcasts who held awful, backwards, evil beliefs by the people around them. They were living in the squeeze. I see some uh, knowing looks. I saw some nods as I was explaining those experiences. It would seem that at least some this morning have some firsthand experience of seeing a culture that is hostile to the Christian faith. We live in a society that sees itself as having evolved past religion. It's no secret. Not just evolving past religion, but certainly evolving past the Christian faith. The Christian faith teaches things that are viewed as intolerant and backwards, bigoted, wrong, close-minded, naive, dangerous. And so increasingly, Christians in this country are being viewed in a negative light and are receiving social pressures and consequences as a result of the faith. In the history of the United States, this is a relatively new phenomenon. Um, we've existed in a bit of a fluke of history. From about the time of the founding of this country until relatively recently, our society that we live in, the West, United States of America, was generally a, a friendly place to the Christian faith. Now, I'm, what I'm not saying is that the United States was a Christian country. Right? I'm not saying that by being an American you weren't inherently a Christian, but it generally was a place that acknowledged that the morality of the Bible was a social positive, that Christianity was generally viewed as, as a good moral characteristic. To say, oh yeah, he's active in his church was to say, yeah, he's a good guy. It was only relatively recently that that changed. I, I read a survey of scholars, both secular and religious, and it seems like the point in time where that change happened, it feels like the range that they agree on is somewhere between the mid-1990s and about 2015. Again, different scholars put that spot differently, but it's somewhere in that range that society as a whole came to have a negative view of Christianity and a negative view of Christians. Christian morality is now expressly rejected. It's seen as a threat to our society's shared sensibilities. 
I stumbled in preparing uh, to teach this text on a really striking example of how quickly and how profoundly this change happened. Two different commentaries on the book of 1 Peter. One was written in 2005, one was written in 2017. Both authors agreed that Peter's audience found themselves marginalized because of their beliefs in a society that found their beliefs unacceptable. The older commentary, written just in 2005, spends about a dozen pages in the introduction in which the author first acknowledges that this book really isn't relevant to the United States because we don't face that type of hostility, but ultimately concludes that we should read 1 Peter because it will help us be empathetic to believers elsewhere in the world. The newer commentary, written just 12 years later, starts with the assertion that there is no more pertinent book for Christians in the United States as 1 Peter on account of the hostility that our society has towards the Christian faith. You see how quickly that happened? It went from, ah, this isn't relevant, but you should probably read it anyways, you know, brush your teeth and eat your vegetables, to this is urgent and we must read it now because this is our cultural moment. And because this change happened so quickly, most Christians are a bit ill-prepared on how to respond. Most in this room, if you do the math there, sometime between 2005 and 2015, say, most of us lived a good portion, if not the majority of our life, in a society that generally was pretty friendly towards the Christian faith. Now it's not, and we're left to ask the question, how should we live as Christians in a society that is hostile towards Christianity. The Bible uses the metaphor of Christians being in a foreign country, and so the question at hand is how should we behave as foreigners in this world? Tim Keller gives two potential options, both wrong. Um, they're not wrong because he said them. He acknowledges that they're wrong. It would be fair to Keller. Um, two ways that you can respond as a foreigner in this strange land. Incoming immigrants or temporary travelers. I think it's a, a pretty good picture. An incoming immigrant comes to a country and tries to be assimilated. They try to be naturalized. They try to become a member, to become included, to belong to this new home. And some Christians, that's how they respond to being foreigners in this land. But that can't be right, because Scripture tells us that we're to be separate, distinct, in the world but not of the world. Uh, James says that if we're seeking friendship with the world, we're making ourselves enemies of God. So the answer can't be, oh, how do we make ourselves like the world? Another option is the temporary traveler, just passing through, avoiding any meaningful interaction. Some of you know I travel a good deal for my job. And some of you have also heard you say, oh, how was Seattle or Tokyo or Brazil or whatever? My response is normally, the airport was good, the hotel was good, the meeting room was good, I can't help you on anything else because I didn't experience anything else. Some Christians, that's how they view their time here as foreigners on this earth. Avoid interacting, just stay engaged with other Christians, cluster together, and wait for that metaphorical flight home but that can't be right either. How can we be salt and light if we don't engage with the world as an ambassador for Christ? 
So we're not supposed to live in this world as incoming immigrants. We're not supposed to live as temporary travelers. How should we live in this world? Peter proposes a better, not better, the correct approach. Christians living in a non-Christian world should see themselves as exiles. Not just exiles, but as elect exiles, as we'll see in the text in just a moment. Now, before I get to the text, a quick asterisk before we get started. Um, I realize I just said elect exiles, and for many of you, that may have provoked some sort of response, either positive or negative. Um, I want to say from the outset, this passage, the point of this passage is not the doctrine of election, so the point of this sermon is not the doctrine of election. If you want a really, really good sermon on the doctrine of election, go back to last week. Justin did it much better than I ever could. Um, So whether you view elect as referring to God choosing individual people or God choosing a people, that is the church, either of those meanings, either of those interpretations don't change or doesn't change the meaning of this text. So I wanted to give that asterisk there. This is not uh, a text about election. All right, got that out of the way. Got some of you back with me. Uh, let's get into our text here. First Peter chapter 1, verses 1 through 2. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. First Peter is a letter. And like all proper letters, it starts with a greeting. But this introduction is well beyond the normal, dear so-and-so, I hope this letter finds you well that we often use. I know, you know, oftentimes you skip past that part of the letter and get to the part that actually tells you something. That's not what's going on here. In fact, I've had a few of you who've came up to me and said, yeah, when I first saw that passage, I was like, okay, and then as I spent time on it, it is rich. It is doctrinally deep. It frames the entire letter by anchoring the Christian identity as elect exiles through the work of the Trinity. Now, these two words together, elect exiles, don't miss this. There is a contradiction in the pairing of those words. To be an exile is to be rejected. To be elect is to be accepted. There's a tension there. That's, that tension is intentional. Peter answers the question, how should Christians relate to this world by referring to a horizontal dimension in which we are strangers with the world and a vertical dimension with God where we are his people, we are included, we are insiders. For those taking notes, if you like to have them nice and organized, you can think of this passage. First is talking in verse 1 about strangers in a strange land. And in verse 2, as sons and daughters of the king, the two aspects of the Christian identity, strangers in a strange land and sons and daughters of the king. Let's start with verse 1, strangers in a strange land. So Peter begins by identifying his audience as exiles. An exile is somebody who is experiencing a time of prolonged separation from their home. They're somewhere that isn't home and they're going to be there for a while. But they 
intend or hope to come back one day. And this is a brilliant picture of the Christian life. We are in the world, we are not of the world. The world finds our beliefs uh, and our customs to be strange or ignorant, off-putting, dangerous. The world loves the darkness, we are people of the light, and so we find no home here, we find no comfort here. We are distinct from the world. Peter goes on to describe these exiles as being exiles in the dispersion. I want to draw your attention to something. You may miss it. Uh, for those who are following along in the, in the ESV version, which is what the Pew Bibles are in, you may notice that dispersion has a capital D there. All right, to, we, we may just think, you know, disper- to disperse means to spread out, so he's just talking about Christians who are around the world. So why is it capitalized? Historically, the term dispersion was a technical term that was found only in Jewish literature in the Hellenistic period, the Greek period, and exclusively referring to Jews who were living in exile, to the Jews who had been exiled from Israel and Judea in the Babylonian exile. It's not overstating it to say that at the time this letter was written, the dispersion was a synonym for the Jewish people. Peter's audience, however, were primarily Gentiles. They weren't Jews. We know this because later in the letter, Peter describes their lives prior to their conversion using distinctly Gentile terms. So that's very curious. Why would he refer to them as being in the dispersion, this term that's used exclusively for the Jewish people, when he's writing to people who aren't Jews? It's because he's drawing an analogy here. He's drawing them into God's people. He's saying that the circumstances that they are experiencing as Gentile believers in a world that is hostile and views their beliefs as strange and foreign has a parallel to these Jews who were dispersed in exile out of the land. We heard when Greg read the passage of Scripture this morning, right? They were in this exile. They were not in their home country. Peter is saying, don't be surprised by the fact that you're not fitting in. Don't be surprised that the world around you views you as foreign. You're part of the people of God now, and the people of God live as pilgrims in this world. The fact that they felt like strangers in this land was evidence that they were part of God's people. It was core to their identity. The field of writing. There's a common plot device known as the fish out of water. Even if you don't know it, you know it. The fish out of water story is somebody in a strange set of circumstances. They don't understand. They don't fit in. Um, Their ways are strange to the people. The people's ways are strange to them. Um... A couple sermons ago, I used a John Wayne reference and got told not everybody knows John Wayne. So here's a broad set of pop culture references, and if you can't engage with one of these, I can't help you. The fish out of water story can be found in the Beverly Hillbillies, the story Country Mouse and City Mouse, Captain America and the Avengers movies, Gulliver and Gulliver's Travels, Paddington Bear, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, Harry Potter, The Matrix, Tarzan, Mork and Mindy, personal favorite in our house, Sonic the Hedgehog movies, A Connecticut Yankee in King Arthur's Court, The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, Back to the Future, my favorite, 
The Little Mermaid is literally a fish out of water story. She <laughs> trades her fins for legs and has no idea what's going on when she gets to land. So hopefully, I, that, like that had to have been broad enough that one of those, you're following with me. Why is it that fish out of water stories are so popular? Why do they capture our imagination? Jerem Bars in the book Echoes of Eden argues that our love for the fish out of water story comes from a deep-seated awareness in every one of us that this world broken by sin, by our sin, is not what God made for us. Every man and woman who ever lived, even though they suppress their knowledge of the truth through unrighteousness, knows that they were made to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. And so Bars argues that in all of us, there's this longing to be in communion with our Creator again, as Adam and Eve were in the garden. These fish-out-of-water stories resonate with us because we hear in them this faint echo of Eden, this communion with God that we lost because of our sin. To be God's people is to be the metaphorical fish out of water. It's to identify as foreign to this world. It's a feeling of homesickness for a place we've never been but we long to get back to. Peter's saying here, yes, if you feel like strangers in this world, if you cannot find any comfort here, if the world is hostile to you, if what you believe is out of sync with the society around you, don't fret. It means you're the people of God. It means that your citizenship is not here. It's in the kingdom of God. As Christians, we shouldn't seek validation from this world. We shouldn't live like incoming immigrants we shouldn't live like temporary travelers either and avoid engagement with this world. Like the exiles that were addressed in the scripture reading this morning, we're called to be both distinct from this world as well as faithful ambassadors for our one true king. Because as Peter notes, there's another aspect of our identity. We're not just strangers, we're not just exiles, we're not just foreigners. There's another aspect of our identity that should give us hope, that should give us faith, that should give us strength when we live in this world. All right, as we move into verse two, there, there's one like linguistic feature I have to explain to make this make sense, and I, I get it. I'm rolling my eyes too. There's nothing more insufferable than a guy who took a couple seminary classes going like, in the Greek, I get it, I hear myself. Um, but there's something that we do have to understand in order to follow Peter's argument here. In uh, verse two, it says, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. There's three prepositional phrases there. They start with, um, according to the foreknowledge, that's number one. Number two, in the sanctification, three, for obedience. Prepositional phrases modify another phrase. These three phrases are modifying elect exiles. You just have to understand that because they happen so much later in the verse that if you lose that, it's like, what's Peter even talking about right now? So he's saying you're elect exiles um, according to the foreknowledge of the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit and so forth. Does that make sense? Hopefully, okay, good deal. Um, so all three of these prepositions describe our status as sons and daughters of the King. Our status as sons and daughters of the king was, and again, if you like taking notes, you'll hear the alliteration here. Um, our status as sons and, sons and daughters of the king was planned by the Father, 
powered by the Spirit and paid for by the Son. First, Peter explains that elect exiles are according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. Again, caveat here, it's not a passage about predestination or free will. The point is the same regardless on how you interpret those doctrines. The idea is that it was always God's plan to have a separate and distinct people for himself. The, the, the word here that's translated as foreknowledge um, used only one other time in the New Testament. It's in uh, Acts 2.23, and it's referring to Christ's work on the cross. It says that was according to the foreknowledge of God. Peter uses the same word, but in the verb form. It's a little later in chapter 1 here, one twenty. He states that Christ was foreknown before the foundation of the world. The, The thing we can't miss here, like based on the context in Scripture, foreknown is much bigger than knowing. It's not just that God um, guessed or predicted. Just as it was the Father's intent that Christ would die and rise again, that was according to his plan, it was the Father's intent to have a people for himself. We see that all throughout Scripture. It's one of those consistent patterns from Genesis 1-1 to the end of Revelation is that God intends to have a people for himself that are separate and distinct from the world. It's part of the plan. The fact that these believers felt like they didn't quite belong, the fact that they were part of their citizenship was with God, was part of God's plan. Why would that give them faith? Well, maybe an illustration that will be helpful for some. I can remember one of the first sporting events that I can recall, the first one that I have a memory of watching. I was around seven years old. Um, I was over at a friend's house with his family, uh, watching what I would say is one of the greatest spectacles of athleticism has ever happened. And I'm, of course, referring to Hulk Hogan challenging Randy the Macho Man Savage for the WWF Heavyweight Championship at WrestleMania 5. This is before I was a Christian. Let's put that there. Um, so lower your eyebrows. Uh, Hulk Hogan, if you aren't aware, was the good guy. We we're supposed to be rooting for him, and so I did. But as the match went on, I was getting concerned because the Macho Man was using every trick in the book eye gouges, low blows, foreign objects. He even resorted to having his manager-slash-girlfriend, Miss Elizabeth, interfere in the match. It wasn't fair, and every time it happened, the referee was looking the other way, and I was getting despondent, especially when the macho man jumped off the top rope with the flying elbow. Some of you know what I'm talking about. For others who don't, let me, let me get you wise here. Up until that point, no one had ever, ever kicked out from the flying elbow. It was over. The referee, one, two. Hulk Hogan kicks out, powered by the excitement of the crowd, beats the Macho Man, wins the title. Yay, hooray. Now, some of you have to close your ears on this. As an adult, I'm quite aware that Hulk Hogan was never in danger of losing the match. Um, Even when it seemed like all hope was lost, It was all just going according to plan. It was planned that he was going to win, and so he did. Now, I'll admit, that illustration is not for everybody. I will acknowledge that. But 
it does serve as a really good illustration for why Peter is saying you can have confidence in this world that hates you because you are part of God's people. That's according to the plan of the Father. The hostility from the world is according to the plan of the Father. It did not take God by surprise the circumstances that these early believers found themselves in. He was not caught unaware. He was not caught off guard. As they experienced this hostility from the world around them, they have may, may have been tempted, as maybe we are at times, to look at everything going on and saying, God, what's happening? Did you forget about us? What's going on? They may have been tempted to succumb to the spirit of the age, the, the society around them. And so Peter's reminding them, God isn't surprised by what's going on. This is part of his plan. We are part of a bigger plan that is bigger than ourselves. We're part of God's purpose, and God's purposes for his people and for his world forms the basis of our hope. We can be confident, even in a world that grows increasingly hostile to the Christian faith, because our identity is as sons and daughters of the king who works all things according to his will for the good of those who love him. What is happening to Christians throughout all of history is not a surprise to the author of history. We can have confidence because we know how the story ends, because we know and are known by the author of the story. But our hope as Christians in this foreign land isn't just in some far-off day to come. It's not some future eschatological fulfillment, and in the meantime, we're stuck here on our own. Our hope is also in the here and now. Peter reminds us of this by next drawing our attention to the power of the Spirit. As sons and daughters of the King, we live in the sanctification of the Spirit. Sanctification is the ongoing process by which God molds us into the image of Christ. It's an ongoing process. All ongoing processes, all processes have a starting point. Um, what's the saying? To uh, make an omelet, you have to break, was it a couple eggs? I don't know. I don't cook in my house, but I think that's right. Um, if you were trying to learn a foreign language, there's that first step of like getting the textbook and opening it, right? Every process has a first step. In the process of sanctification, that starting point was that day where through the power of the Holy Spirit, we trusted, repented, believed, and became a member of the people of God. We were cleansed of our sins. We were set apart as a member of God's people. Put another way, our sanctification began when we became members of God's people. That same Holy Spirit that transformed us from someone who was an enemy of God to being adopted by God continues to be at work in us in the process of sanctification. Again, it's an ongoing process. We're not left here alone. It's not like we're stranded here. We weren't dropped off and, oh, I'll come back for you like uh, one um, religion that I won't dignify by naming. Um, that says that we were dropped off here by a UFO. Um, 
That perked your interest. Um, We weren't dropped off here to fend for ourselves awaiting for God eventually to get around to coming back. We have the Holy Spirit. Romans 8.26 says the Spirit um, helps us in our weakness. It is the means by which we battle for the faith in this world. Our battle to overcome the temptations of this world should not rely on our strengths or our smart or our will. It's through the power of the Spirit. It comes from the Spirit. By virtue of being part of God's elect, by virtue of being one of the sons and daughters of the King, we have the power of the Holy Spirit. I think a good parallel here um, would be holding a U.S. passport for any of you who have that. Again, as I mentioned, I travel a decent amount, often internationally, often with coworkers who aren't from the United States. And because of that, I've observed that as a traveler, there's benefits that I get from having that blue passport that people from other countries don't necessarily get. There are benefits that come along with it. Now, I know there's some of you who... um, have gone through the difficult and long process of naturalization and becoming a citizen. But for most of us in this room, we didn't do anything to get that status. We didn't do anything to get that benefit. Nothing to do with us. We enjoy these tremendous benefits and privilege, not because of anything that we did. And that's a fitting parallel for what's being described here. As Christians, we're citizens of this great kingdom of God. We have the benefit of the Holy Spirit who strengthens us and comforts us and will give us the endurance to, to survive and thrive in a world that hates the truth because of the work of the Holy Spirit. Conservative evangelicals, which would encompass, I think, many if not most here, Often, we have too small of a view of the Holy Spirit. The the fruit of the Spirit is more than a catchy song that our kids sing. It's the result of the Spirit's work in us. So it's interesting, if you ask the question, oh, what possible strategy should we, this was actually a real, there was a series of articles being written about what is the strategy that Christians should use to keep their faith in a hostile world. And there are all these like sociological strategies that were proposed. Folks, one of the fruit of the Spirit is faithfulness. John MacArthur describes that fruit of the Spirit as an inner commitment to the truth that consistently expresses itself as outward loyalty and obedience to Christ. What is our strategy for being faithful? Scripture tells us the Holy Spirit will give us the fruit of the Spirit, which includes faithfulness. How do we stay strong as exiles in a world that hates our faith? It's relying on the Holy Spirit. Finally, Peter offers one more encouragement related to our status as sons and daughters of the king. It was paid for by Christ. We see in the text, uh, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. What does that mean? Peter here is drawing a parallel to Exodus 24. I have to turn there because I'm going to be going through Exodus very quickly, and you'll get paper cuts if you try to keep up. But Exodus 24, Moses is coming down off Mount Sinai. He has received the law. He has received the terms of the covenant that God was making with his people. This covenant included blessings for obedience 
and consequences for disobedience. Moses comes down the mountain, and we see how that covenant is inaugurated with the people. First, in Exodus 24, 3, Moses comes down, he tells the people all the words of God, all the rules, all the terms of the covenant. I'll read here. And all the people answered with one voice and said, all the words that the Lord has spoken, we will do. The covenant is inaugurated through a promise of obedience. Then Moses had the young men perform a sacrifice of animals. And he took that blood and he sprinkled it on the people. Covenant was inaugurated by obedience and the sprinkling of blood. You see the parallel here to 1 Peter 2? These exiles in the world, again, are being reminded of their status as God's people. They're being uh, linked to God's people in the Old Testament. He's inviting Christians to understand our identity, both in a hostile world and as it relates to God, as part of God's special covenant people. But Peter takes this idea and he makes it so much better. He's not just saying, hey, you can look to the past um, to have confidence for the present and the future. In some sense, he is saying that, but he's expanding that idea to something so much bigger and so much better. It's not the blood of an oxen that's being sprinkled on them. It's Christ's blood. What's the significance here? Well, again, I mentioned I'm going to be doing a very quick overview of Exodus. Some of you may remember from Sunday school, right? So these people, they pledged their obedience. They were sprinkled with the blood. Moses goes back up the mountain. He comes back down. And what does he find? They're worshiping an idol. This is literally the second thing in the law that they were supposed to obey. The thing that they said, oh, we'll obey. They couldn't get past the second one. So much for that pledge of obedience. Leviticus 1 picks up at the foot of Mount Sinai with God instituting this sacrificial system to make atonement for sins. I would apply, imply that once again, this vow of obedience is not going great, to put it lightly. They continue to sin. Because of that, they continue to need cleansing and atonement. This is the pattern throughout the entire Old Testament. Disobedience to God, consequences for that disobedience. God has mercy, accepts an atoning sacrifice, their right relationship again, the people pledge their obedience, and that normally lasts all of like 15 seconds. Lather, rinse, repeat. Hebrews 10 explains this endless cycle, noting that the sacrifices have to be offered again and again and again and again because of the people's continued disobedience to God and because, as it states in Hebrews 10, 4, because the blood of ox and goats and bulls is insufficient to cleanse these people for their sins. But in Hebrews 10, 11, it explains that when Christ offered his sacrifice, it was for all sins. In that single offering, he perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. 
First Peter 1, 2 is saying something really profound here. He's drawing this parallel to God and the people of Israel entering into this covenant. But it's also pointing to the fact that in that covenant, the people relied on their own obedience, which always failed, and they relied on sacrifices from their own herds, which always failed to adequately cover their sins. Those who are in Christ, the obedience comes from the sanctification of the Spirit, from God. The sacrifice comes from Christ, God's spotless Lamb. It's sufficient for all of their sins. This is huge. It's one thing when we're facing a hostile world and trying to cling to the faith to be reminded that we're part of God's people. It's something else entirely to be reminded that our entrance into God's people was paid, for the once, paid by the once and for all sacrifice of Christ and that their obedience is not going to be based on their own strength but on the strength of the Spirit. There's times in our lives where um, we are included in something or benefit from something based on ourselves, what we do, and who we are. And there's also times where we are included or have benefits based on, what something's, based on something someone else has done. I remember back in school, maybe your school had this as well, there was the cool kids table um, where the starting quarterback and the prom queen and all of, all of the cool kids in school, that's where they ate lunch. I'm describing it from afar. I was not at the cool kids table. That was fine by me. But I do remember a couple friends of mine. One was just on the periphery of the cool kids because he was a kicker on the football team. So, you know, that's, that's like kind of in, but not really. Some days he was welcome at that table. Other days he was not. And that wasn't lost on anybody, that he was one awkward joke, one weird outfit, one social faux pas from getting kicked out of that table and having to earn his way back in. He would be banished again to our table of band geeks and computer nerds and metalheads and all kinds of assorted weirdos. There was another member of my extended circle of friends, however, who was welcome at that table whenever he wanted. Why? Because his sister was one of the coolest of the cool kids at the school, and she insisted that he be allowed to sit with her. His inclusion had nothing to do with him, nothing to do with his status, nothing to do with how smart he was or popular or funny. He was there on account of another. Peter is making a critically important point here. As Christians, we are members of God's people. We are sons and daughters of the king, not because of our obedience, not because of our sacrifices. It's not the work of our hands that got us into the kingdom, and it's not the work of our hands that keeps us in the kingdom. It's what Christ has done. So what the Spirit enables, what the Father has planned. Christians are the ultimate benefactor of a divine, hey, he's with me. Peter's audience found itself in a situation similar to where we find ourselves today, I'd argue. The song that we sang earlier stated, they encountered harm and hatred for Christ's name. And Peter gave them encouragement by reminding them of their dual status as elect exiles, as 
people who were strangers in a strange land, but also sons and daughters of the ultimate king. We are simultaneously as God's people, the ultimate outsiders and the eternal insiders. Horizontally, we are strangers. Vertically, we are included. So what does it look like, practically, to live as an elect exile? For those of us who follow Christ, this text calls us to remember our true identity. We are elect exiles. We should not be surprised by hostility. We should not be surprised that the world finds our beliefs foolish or wrong or dangerous. Nor should we retreat. We shouldn't cloister ourselves off into our comfortable little ghettos and avoid engaging with the world. We are Christ's ambassadors. And so the call of this text to Christians is to live as Christ's ambassadors. One very practical way you can respond to this text is to get equipped to live as one of Christ's ambassadors in this hostile world. Starting next month, Josh Colvin's going to be teaching a seminar, Evangelism as Exiles. He uses 1 Peter to explain how we share the gospel, how we serve as Christ's ambassadors in this foreign land. What a great, concrete, practical way to apply this truth. Another way of remembering our true identity in Christ is by publicly declaring our allegiance to Christ. It applies to some. If you consider yourself a member of the elect exiles, if you call yourself a Christian, but you've not yet obeyed Christ in baptism, I encourage you to do so. Something magical about baptism, you're the same person before and after. Baptism isn't what saves. But baptism is the public declaration that Christ is your Lord. It's saying, in the census of the world, don't count me as a citizen of this kingdom, count me as a citizen of that kingdom. So if you're in Christ, the application of this text is to embrace your identity as an elect exile. Some here this morning may not know Jesus Christ as Lord. And for you, this text and the entirety of Scripture calls you to renounce your worldly citizenship. This isn't for everyone. Maybe it's for you this morning. I've said a lot today about the state of this world, its brokenness. It's sinfulness. It's evil. Friends, that wasn't always the case. The world that God created was good, and it will one day be good again. He created everything, and that includes you and I. He created man and woman, and he called them very good. Do you know that? You are the masterpiece. You are the pinnacle of God's creation. We're the only piece of creation of everything you see that bears God's image. We were created especially to have fellowship with God, to enjoy fellowship with Him, to glorify Him and enjoy Him forever. We were meant to live joyfully under God's good and righteous rule, but sin changed all of that. Maybe you've heard the story before, Adam and Eve, and maybe you've thought to yourself, I don't get it. It's an apple or 
it's not really an apple, but that's how it's always in the Berenstein Bears Bible. Um, I don't get it. It's a fruit. What is the big deal? Friends, Adam and Eve weren't just breaking some arbitrary rule. They were rejecting God. They were declaring their independence from him. The thing that they sought when they ate that fruit, the promise that the serpent made, is that they would be like God and therefore not need him. This was a cosmic act of treason against the rightful ruler of the world. And since that day, every single person who has ever lived, every descendant of Adam and Eve has followed in their footsteps. We think our ways are better than God's. We rebel against our creator, the rightful king of the universe. We declare our independence from him with every act of sin, every act of rebellion. We refuse to obey his word, and all the lambs and all the oxes and all the goats that have ever lived would not atone for our sins and make things right. The state of this broken world is because of sin. The wages of sin are death, physical death, spiritual death, all of the evil and decay, all of the things. Again, I'm talking to unbelievers here. When you look around at this world and you know in your heart, in your conscience, that this isn't right, it is because of sin. Look what our self-rule has wrought. But God, in his kindness, displayed undeserved grace in a shocking and scandalous way. The rightful king of all creation, Jesus Christ, became the sacrificial lamb to atone for the sins of his people. He lived the obedient life that you and I could not and would not live, died the death we deserved to die, paid the penalty we could never afford, and then on the third day rose again, beating death. He became the perfect sacrifice to atone for sin forever, and he promised the Holy Spirit to help us grow in Christ-likeness. Again, this isn't for everyone, but for maybe you today. The offer to become a son or daughter of the king is available to you right now this morning. The citizenship process is easy. Easy immigration process. Faith and repentance. Put your faith in Jesus Christ. Rely on him to make you righteous. Turn from your rebellion against God and follow Jesus Christ as Lord. If the sin in your life, if the sin that you see around in this world, if this brokenness and hurt and all of the results of the self-rule that you've been living is making you weary, come to the Lord Jesus Christ this morning and he will give you rest. God may be calling you today to join his elect exiles. Let's pray. Father, you are good and kind your role is right. Your ways are best. Father, thank you for the truth that we see in Scripture. Thank you for the comfort that we see. Thank you for the confidence that Christians can have that even as the world around us rejects us, even as the world around us is hostile to the truth, that our identity is not found in validation from the world. Our identity is found in you. And our identity is secured it is applied by the unfailable work of the Spirit. It is part of the unfailable plan of the Father. And it is purchased in the immeasurable worth of the blood of the Son. Father, I pray that these words this morning from Scripture 
transform Christians into greater likeness of Christ. And I pray, Father, if it your will, that these words also convict sinners to trust in Christ as their Lord and Savior. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.